Well, tonight, uh, Susie Chun is going to be concluding this four-week series that we've been going through, just speaking of the Jewish holidays and, and the fall feasts and, and how that actually uh, affects us as believers. And the good news is that every single one of us have an, has an opportunity to not just learn from our Jewish roots or the, the ways that... Uh, when we read in the Bible, the, the things that they did, and even still today, the different holidays that are celebrated, we also have an opportunity to stay close to Jesus because of what he has done for us. So when you listen tonight and you're taking notes, that everything will point to Jesus. That's the, that's the amazing thing about what we've been learning in the past couple of weeks is everything points to Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua. And Susie Chun has been doing an outstanding job at bringing us the Word of God. So would you welcome her with me? Uh, welcome her up, <laughs> Susie Chun, and as she shares tonight. I'm just going to move this forward a little bit. Shalom. <laughs> it's been a huge blessing for me to be able to teach on the Hebrew roots of the faith over these last four weeks and specifically about God's appointed time, or Moedim, and especially about the three fall feasts. For the last three weeks, we have been looking at that, and as Pastor said, they're all relevant to Yeshua. Yeshua is Jesus' Hebrew name. First of all, they are about God's love and his desire to have a relationship with his beloved creation. That's us. From the first appointed time of Passover, where a sinless God shed his blood to bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful people, through to the last of the fall feasts, Sukkot, which is prophetic of the time that we will tabernacle with God forever, we see God's love and we see God's grace. These feasts are also about God's glory and give us a glimpse of the awesomeness of God. And they also put us on God's eternal calendar, his appointment book, where he promises to meet all who trust in him. Tonight I'm going to show you the connection or relationship between the Jewish people and who are God's chosen people and the church. First, I want to do one last review of the Moedim, sometimes called the Jewish holidays, but in reality, they're God's holidays. With tonight's recap, since we're looking at the connection between the Jewish person and the Gentile uh, believer, I'm going to first talk about what these holidays mean to the Jewish person or to Israel, and then what they mean to any believer in Yeshua. Before I do, I just want to mention to you that there is one uh, there is one feast that I haven't been talking about, and it is also in that fabulous, wonderful chapter in that book we all love now. What book is that? Leviticus chapter 23. Okay, so the Sabbath, or Shabbat, the Hebrew word, is also one of the Moedim. Now, the, the Sabbath happens every week. Starts Friday night in the Jewish calendar and ends on Saturday night. So it's a weekly thing. These Moedim happen just once throughout the year. But I just wanted you to be aware of that. Teaching on the Sabbath is a whole 
other teaching, but just wanted to be aware that it is one of God's appointed times. So I said I was going to give a little quiz this week. We're going to start right here. The signs are not up, okay? I have symbols up instead. The first of the spring feasts is called Passover. Good. If you haven't gotten your notes, please raise your hand or go back and get some notes real fast because it's in your notes, okay? And I really encourage you, as every week, to have notes to follow along. It will give you scriptures that I don't include, and it will help you to kind of follow the gist of what I'm doing. Okay, so Passover. Passover, and the symbol I put down here is some blood and a piece of hyssop. Of course, it's not really that stuff, but it looks like it. All right. And what Passover, to the Jewish person, Passover remembers the time that God set them free from bondage in Egypt when they were slaves in Egypt, and what they had to do was take some hyssop, dip it into a lamb's blood, and put it on their doorposts, and the angel of death passed over them. For the believer, it is a time that we remember and celebrate that the Lamb of God, Yeshua, Jesus, went to the cross, shed his blood, so that the angel of death can pass over us. And that's Passover. The next holiday, what's it called? Unleavened bread. And here's some matzah, some unleavened bread. This is the next day from Passover. For the Jewish person, it, is, it starts a week of not eating any leavening at all because leaven is associated with sin in the Bible, and it also remembers the time that they fled from Egypt so quickly there wasn't time for their bread to rise. And so they ate unleavened bread, and that's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For the believer, it's the time that Yeshua was put in the grave, the sinless Lamb of God who became our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And then we come to first fruits. First fruits takes place three days after Passover begins. For the Jewish person, it it was a time where God said, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. And when I do, there's going to be a harvest. And I want you, though, to bring back the first fruits of your harvest to me. It was a time for the people to thank God for the provision that they made for them. They were slaves before, now they were going to have harvest times. And to remember God by bringing back to him. For the believer, first fruits tells us that Jesus was the first fruit of all who died and was resurrected. Because it was exactly on the day of first fruits, three days after Passover, that he rose from the grave and became the first one to raise from the grave so that we could later on. Then, for, 50 days later, we have Shavuot. Good. Now, on Shavuot, it is another, for the Jewish person, another agricultural celebration when the wheat harvest would come in. And what would happen is, I'll do it this way, I think. The people would bring two loaves of wheat bread, leavened bread. And it was the only time they were bringing leavened bread to be offered. And they were waved 
by the priest before the Lord as an offering to him, again, thanking God for his provision. Also on Shavuot, it's remembered, it's believed that that was the time that Moses received the law on Mount Sinai with lots of thundering sounds like the shofar and thunder and lightning and fire. And, of course, the law is so holy to the Jewish people. For the believer in Yeshua, on this very day of Pentecost or Shavuot, God chose to send his Holy Spirit. You can read about that in Acts chapter 2. With fire, with sound, the Holy Spirit came, just like the law came. And the two loaves of bread are symbolic of what happened on that day, too, when Jew and Gentile, two, sin, two sinful groups, came together to begin the, the, what we call the church, or the body of Yeshua. Then we have this, what's this part? It's a summer harvest. No Moedim at all. And I've said before, this is the time that we're in right now as the church. It is the harvest time before the fall feast. These feasts, the spring ones, were all fulfilled by the first coming of Yeshua. These will all be fulfilled in the second coming. Here is where we are prophetically right now. What, and we sang so many songs that were so right on tonight about uh, of what we should be of bringing the kingdom in and looking to the harvest. For the Jewish person, there's just one scripture in Leviticus about this. It says it's a summer harvest, but leave the edges of your field for the poor to come and glean. For the believer... It's a time to reach out to the poor. It's a, reach, it's a time to reach out to the hurting and to take care of them and bring people into the harvest for Jesus now. Okay, here we go to the fall feast. These are the ones that we did the last three weeks on. First one. Yom Teruah. Okay. It's the only one of the Moedim that for the Jewish person is not associated with a historical event or associated with an agricultural feast. But it is associated with coming together in a holy convocation and blowing the shofar. They remember that it was a time of call to battle. It was a time to warn. It was a time to bring people together in holy convocation to worship God. And it was a time to repent. It begins 10 days of what they call the 10 days of all before the next holiday, where Jewish people begin to do what's called teshuva, repenting for their sins. For the believer, we think of the shofar, we think it's the blast that will summon the Messiah. The king of kings will come with the blast, and the bridegroom is going to come with the blast of the shofar. Pastor Sheldon mentioned that tonight. He's preparing a place for us, and when he comes... He will blow this shofar, and we, the bride, should be ready. And so it's a time for us to practice for a wedding rehearsal, to make sure our wedding garments are in place, to make sure that we are on the alert and prepared. Next we have just 10 days later. What is this one called? Yom Kippur, right, Yom Kippur. And on Yom Kippur... It ends these 10 days of awe. For the Jewish person, they have, been, they have been praying, and on this day they will fast, they will afflict their soul, they will humble themselves, 
and say prayers hoping that their name will be put into a book called the Book of Life. And on that, and the end of that day, as sun sets on Yom Kippur, they believe that God will close those books and then their fate is sealed for uh, the next uh, year. For the believer, it is a time really to look to the Lord and, and, and also recalibrate and check and say, okay, Lord, am I ready to meet you face to face? Am I doing what you're telling me to do? And in the Old Testament, there was a high priest who on this holiday of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, would go into the temple or go into the tabernacle, go into the inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies, take the blood of a lamb or the blood of a goat or a bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, asking for God to atone for his sins first and then the sins of all of the nation of Israel. And that had to be done year after year. And they just kind of hoped on this holiday for the believer, on Yom Kippur, we can thank God Yeshua became that high priest. You can read about it in Hebrews. He became the high priest. He went in and he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat of heaven, in heaven, so that we could go into the Holy of Holies and one day stand face to face with our Lord. That brings us to the last of the Moadim. This one is called Sukkot, right, Feast of Tabernacles. For the Jewish person, it's a time when they remember when they were in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years, when they came out of Egypt until they were into the promised land of Israel. And while they were there, they remember and they pass on to future generations. God took care of us. He fed us manna from heaven. He gave us water from a rock. And we took leafy greens and we made things called Sukkot, tabernacles, booths that we could live in, and we were protected. It is also a holiday that both Jew and Gentile are commanded to rejoice. And this theme was very pronounced in two ceremonies conducted during Yeshua's time that I talked about last week. During the joyous ceremony, uh, there was a joyous water ceremony. Isaiah 12.3 was quoted or sung, With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. And that's what they would say. The second ceremony had to do with light, where they had four humongous menorah or candelabra set up at the temple, each with four Huge bowls of oil lit, the, it lit up the entire city because the temple was on a hill in Jerusalem. And they knew those words that the Messiah was going to come because Sukkot is very associated with the, in the Jewish mind of the coming of the Messiah. And they knew the scripture from Isaiah 49.6. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Hebrew word for salvation in both those scriptures, this one that's up here now and the one that was up before, is the word Yeshua. 
And so they're talking about salvation, Yeshua, at these fabulous, joyous ceremonies. And Yeshua took that moment to stand up, first at the water ceremony, and he said, All who are thirsty, come to me and drink, and from you will flow rivers of living water. For believers, this is a time for joyfully and humbly recognizing that we drink deeply from the fountain of salvation in Yeshua. And as John chapter 7 and 8 tells us, he stood in front of those blazing menorah and he said, I am the light of the world. He was proclaiming that he was the Messiah. He was saying, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. I will be a light to the nations, not just Israel, but to the Gentile nations also. I will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Sukkot is a time we humbly thank God that he has chosen to tabernacle with all believers by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's a time when we practice bringing the kingdom of God to earth as we can reach out to a hurting world. It's a time that looks forward to the second coming of the Messiah when he's going to set up his kingdom on earth in Jerusalem. And even better, it speaks about joy unspeakable and full of glory as God tabernacles with us in forever and ever in eternity. Amazing. Now, of course, the fall feasts are yet to be fully yet to be fully fulfilled. We don't know the day or the hour of Yeshua's second coming, but I do believe we know the season, and that is, I think, the season that we should be on the alert for. We are to be alert, prepared, and to make sure our lives are set apart for him, to thirst for him, to rejoice in him, and by doing so, harvest souls for the kingdom of God. Amen? Okay. So that was the review from the last three weeks and also from before. So here we have the body of believers is connected to the Jewish people in the observance and understanding of these prophetic Moedim. One big difference is that Jewish people do not think the Messiah has come again, has come at all, and they are waiting for him. For believers in Yeshua, we know that he's been here and that he will come again. So how can we help the Jewish people, Israel, to recognize their Messiah? I believe one key is for the church to finally really get what the Jewish people are, who the Jewish people are, and how God feels about them, and just what is the church's relationship to the Jewish people and to Israel. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. The bottom line is we are mishpuka, family with them. The church is family, mishpuka, to the Jewish race. We start back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. There was a descendant by the name of Noah named Abram. He was later to be called Abraham. And he lived in a really pagan place called Ur of the Chaldeans. At the end of Genesis chapter 11, it says that God called Abram to leave his home, everything he knew, and go to a place called Canaan. 
I want you to know that God speaking to Abraham was really significant because no one had heard the voice of God since the days of Noah when Noah was instructed to build the ark, and that had been several hundred years. And so God was speaking to this man named Abram, and he said to him in Genesis 12, 1 to 2, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Just put yourself in Abram's shoes. He had lived his whole life in a pagan city where the moon god was worshipped, and there had been no voice of the true God for hundreds of years. And there was no belief in one God. He had no earthly frame of reference for this. Yet he hears God promise him, a 75-year-old married but childless man, that a great nation would come from him. This is the promise that was to bring forth the Jewish people. Prior to this time, there were no Jewish people, no Hebrews. And the picture gets bigger in verse 3 of the things that God promised to Abram. Genesis 12, 3 says, and let's read this together. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God promises to be such a defender of Abram that he will bless or curse people according to how they treat Abram and his descendants. And if that's not enough, he also tells Abram, the whole world's going to be blessed by him. My husband Lester jokingly likes to say that he's so blessed because he blesses me, and he does. Seriously, I'm sure God's words were mind-boggling to Abram. What did he do? He obeyed God. He took a journey. He believed and obeyed God, and he and his wife, Sarai, and his nephew, Lot, you may have heard about him, and their entourage crossed over the Euphrates River to an uncharted territory called Canaan land, which is modern-day Israel. Abram didn't see any of the huge promises yet, but he had faith in God and went. In Canaan land, the word of the Lord came to Abram again, as recorded in Genesis 15.5, telling still childless Abram, getting older, that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. You can imagine aged Abram pondering that mind-boggling thought. My descendants are going to be as many as the stars in the sky. I'm really old, God. But then he did something amazing. It's recorded in Genesis 15, 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God's word, even though he was old and childless, and God made him righteous. That is faith resulting in righteousness. Wait, you might say, isn't that a New Testament thought, faith leading to righteousness? It is for sure. But it's also right there in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, where Abram, soon to be called Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, was made righteous because of his faith or belief in God. 
At that time, once again, God told Abraham that he would possess the land he was living in, that Israel would be the Jewish people's land. The covenant was unconditional and valid forever, even if Abram and his descendants were unfaithful to God. The sovereign God made a forever irrevocable covenant with himself in behalf of Abram's descendants, who would later be called the Israelites or Jews, and the land they would occupy, which would later be called Israel. The covenant holds until this day, brothers and sisters. The steadfastness of that covenant was tested sometime later when Abraham and Sarah, which their names were changed that, took it into their own hands and they decided, well, we'll help God along. And Abraham um, took Sarah's maid and they had a child through her. This, uh, Sarah's maid's name was Hagar. But Ishmael, the son, was not God's plan. And God made that very clear to Abram, Abraham when he said in Genesis 21, 12, your descendants will not be th- uh, through Ishmael. Through Isaac, your descendants will be. So now Abram is 99 years old. And the Lord appears one more time to him and changes his name to Abraham, which means the father of multitudes. Even though Abraham and Sarah had blown it by trying to fulfill God's promises by their own devices, God was so gracious. You see, the covenant was never about Abraham's goodness or performance, but rather about God's grace. Abraham was an imperfect man who believed in God. Does that sound familiar? It's not about how perfect we are. It's all about who God is. We all fail, but God is faithful and keeps his promises to us. And jumping ahead just a bit, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, the Jewish nation, would over the centuries fail God many times. But God has never changed his mind, and he never will. His chosen people will live on, Israel will live on, Because our merciful, omnipotent, sovereign God made promises that are unbreakable. The solidity of these promises is expressed in Jeremiah 32, 37. When Jeremiah quotes the Lord and he says, Listen, if anybody can ever measure the entire expanse of the heavens and the entire foundation of the earth, then I'll be finished with Israel. But, of course, that's impossible. Nobody will ever do that, and God will never be finished with Israel. He's watching over them forever. Although this covenant was unbreakable and unconditional, the Lord did tell Abraham that he wanted to do a sign of the covenant, and that was circumcision. And Abraham circumcised himself and his entire, all the males in his household. Once again, he obeyed God, and one year later, at the age of 100, and Sarah's age 91, They had the child of promise, and they called him Isaac. There was to be one more test of faith for Abraham. Genesis 22, 1-3 says, Now it came about after those things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. God said to him, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering 
on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. God has asked him to take his only son, of the son of promise, and kill him. And what does Abraham do? He does it. He begins to do it. Abraham's response to God, here I am, is the Hebrew word hineni. It does not mean, I'm here. It means, I'm here. I'm here ready to do your will. With arms raised. Abraham had grown in, in his faith to such a place that he was willing to kill his only beloved son, who was going to be the promise of multitudes to come. I think you know this story here. As Abraham and Isaac, and here's a slide of it, there's Isaac on the, on the mountain, Abraham with his knife, about to kill his son, but an angel of the Lord appears and stops him. On the way to that mountain, Isaac had innocently said to him, where's the lamb, daddy? Where's the lamb? And God said, God will provide. But when they got there, there was no lamb. And just as Abraham was to plunge that knife into his son, the angel of the Lord stopped him. And a ram was in a thicket there and was used for the sacrifice. Well, Isaac lived and later had a son named Jacob. God later renewed his covenant with the people, his chosen people, with both Isaac and Jacob. And thus with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have the establishment of the nation of Israel. These three men are called the patriarchs of the faith. Now, how does all this relate to you here tonight? Mostly non-Jews in the 21st century. First of all, Abraham is called the father of our faith, all of our faith. Every believer today can trace at least spiritual kinship to Abraham. Let's look at a scripture in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and one in the New Testament that shows that. Genesis 17, 5 through 6. When the Lord renewed his covenant with Abraham, even before Isaac was born, he told Abraham, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. Not just one nation, a multitude of nations. The word nation used here is one I know very well growing up. It's the Hebrew word goyim, which means Gentile or non-Jews. How did I get to know this word so well? My mother would say to me, Susie, don't marry from the goyim. There's my husband right there. Sorry, Mom. (laughs) But seriously, it's so meaningful that even before Abraham and Sarah had a child, God was indicating that the covenant of blessing would not be just to the Jewish people, but would be enlarged to a people group not descended from Abraham. Not only would Abraham have a multitude of blood descendants, the Jewish people, he would be spiritual father to a multitude of of Gentile believers. In the book of Galatians, the great apostle Paul, who was a rabbi, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
directly links Abraham's faith in God to all believers, Jew and Gentile. Galatians 3.8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Oh, I'm going to start again. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All nations going will be blessed in you. And verse 29 explains what that blessing is. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. In other words, Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, is also the father of all of us who stand in faith and believe God to bring us into righteousness through his son, Yeshua. Father Abraham stands out as an inspiration for all believers to lift their hands to the Lord and say, Hineni, I'm ready to do your will. And remember, God told Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. There have been many blessings from the Jewish people. They have given us, one, they have given us faith in one God, his law, a solid rock moral code. And more recently, Advances in science, medicine, agriculture, and the arts that proportionally go far beyond the size of the Jewish population. However, the ultimate fulfillment of that blessing that was promised is when Yeshua, a Jew, a blood descendant of Abraham, became our Savior and Lord, allowing everyone who believes in him, Jew and Gentile both, to stand in right standing with God. So you may say, well, does believing in Yeshua make me Jewish? I believe that biblically a Jewish person is a blood descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A Gentile is everyone else. But believers in Yeshua, all of them have a strong spiritual connection of faith. Before Yeshua came, only the Jewish people who were converted to Judaism or the Jewish people had a covenant relationship with God. The Gentiles were considered unclean. The early church was all Jewish. All the disciples were Jewish. The writers of the New Testament were Jewish. There was no thought on the disciples' part in the beginning to share the gospel with the Gentile outsiders, the unholy ones. But then God did something amazing because God loves the whole world. He had a plan that would connect the church. And when we look at this connection between Jew and Gentile, as recorded in Acts chapter 10, a God-fearing Gentile man by the name of Cornelius had a vision, a vision from God to summon somebody by the name of Peter to come to his house. At the same time God was giving Cornelius that vision, God was giving the vision, a vision to Peter. And essentially, in that vision, God was telling Peter, Peter, I want you to go to Cornelius' house. Somebody's going to come and ask you to go there. He's a Gentile, but I want you to go. And when Peter got to Cornelius' house, he realized that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That was Acts chapter 10, 34. This was radical. 
the Jews only knew that they were the chosen people. Now God was, what was he doing here? Well, Peter, in obedience, preached the gospel to Cornelius and his family. And as he was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And they were baptized in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. That was the beginning of believing Jew and Gentile coming together as one new man. Ephesians 2.15 says, So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting enmity, thereby putting to death the enmity. This is the fulfillment of the waving of these two leavened loaves that was done at Shavuot. They are leavened. They're a symbol of sin. The Jew and the Gentile coming together as one in Yeshua. That was astounding to the early church that something like that could be. And now here we sit, of course, in an assembly of believers, mostly Gentile. The relationship, though, between the church and the Jewish people has not always been peaceful. In fact, there's a horrendous history of the church removing everything Jewish from the church service and and actually removing Jews also. There's been a terrible lie called replacement theology that says God's finished with the Jewish people. He's finished with Israel, and they have been disobedient. They didn't believe. Kaput. And therefore, every promise that is in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, is now for the church. And that's it. Finished with the Jews. The church has all those promises. That is a horrendous lie. That is not true. He is not finished, as I've said before. Nobody's measured the heavens and all the depths of the earth yet. And, but praise God, there is a renewal happening in the church today. That in a balanced way, God is restoring to his people, to the Gentile church a lot, the understanding of the foundation of their Jewish roots. And I'm really thankful that this congregation has embraced its Jewish roots and has a love for Israel and the Jewish people has allowed me to do these teachings. I'm really thankful for that. So, Jewish roots. Have you wondered where that expression came from? The Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans to to a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. But the Gentiles believers were making things difficult for the Jewish believers. What Paul wrote is another connection between Jew and Gentile that the church really needs to understand to be part of God's plan for the Jewish people. I encourage you to read Romans 9, 10, and 11 on your own. We don't have time, of course, for that tonight, but I'm just going to briefly summarize it so you see this wonderful connection that God has made with the Jew and the Gentile. In Romans 9, Paul shares his heart about the Jewish people who do not believe in Yeshua. His heart is broken that his Jewish brethren, children of the promise through Abraham, have missed 
recognizing the Messiah. Paul goes on in the rest of the chapter to defend God's sovereign right to extend his family to the Gentiles and whoever he wishes. The Gentiles who have faith in Yeshua will be counted as righteous. He continues in Romans 10.3 about unbelieving Israel. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Jewish people did not, most, a lot of them did not believe in Yeshua. They did not believe in God's grace. They were clinging to works, works through the law. The law is not bad. The law is wonderful. But they did not enter into a faith relationship and therefore become righteous. And so Paul is saying, for Christ is the end of righteousness to everyone who believes. And of course, also in Romans 10, 9 and 10 is that wonderful scripture that says, if you believe in Yeshua, in your heart, confess him with your mouth, you will be saved. In Romans 11, Paul unveils the mystery of the relationship between the church and Israel, the Jewish people. First, he clearly states that God has not rejected Israel, and there's a remnant of believers yet. I'm one of those remnant people. However, Paul states in verse 8, the Lord has partially and temporarily blinded or hardened unbelieving Jewish hearts so salvation could come to the rest of the world, so it could come to the nations, could come to the going. And that was what began with Cornelius. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 11 that the believing Gentile is then to make the Jewish person jealous. How do you, as believing Gentiles, make a Jewish person jealous? By walking in the love of God, by loving what God loves, and by loving the Jewish people in Israel. They are not perfect people, not by any means, but God has chosen them. And then beginning in verse 17 of Romans 11, Paul issues a warning to the Gentile believers. Don't be proud in your relationship with God. Now, Israel is biblically known as the olive tree. Indeed, Israel, indeed, if you visit Israel today, you will see olive trees all over. The Garden of Gethsemane, where Yeshua spent his last night before he went to the cross is a grove of olive trees. It's a fruitful, long-lasting tree and has strong roots. In Romans 11, you see here a graphic of what Paul teaches in Romans 11, starting in verse 17. Israel is a cultivated, natural olive tree with strong roots, the roots being the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, Paul states that the natural olive tree, Israel, had branches broken off, and the branches that you see laying on the ground there, that's unbelieving Israel. Branches broken off this tree. Paul then warns the church, don't be arrogant. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. In other words, he was saying, Gentile believers don't think, oh, those Jewish people, they don't believe. We got it. He says, no, 
look, you have been grafted into this tree. And he even goes on to say that if you if you're not careful, your branches can be broken off too. It, he's saying in essence, hey church, you follow a Jewish book, the Bible. You believe in a Jewish Lord, Yeshua. And you are grafted into a Jewish people. You are Mishpaka. You are family. Embrace your roots and su- they support your faith. And so Paul says, you can, in verse 20 to 22, he says, your, your, your branches could be broken off. And then he goes on to a glorious promise, an unveiling of the mystery of God's plan for the Jew and Gentile together. In Romans eleven twenty-five through 27, he says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Zion, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When God has decided it's time, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, Israel will be grafted back into its own tree during a national revival of faith in Yeshua. They will, he will take away their sins. This partial hardening will be over when the fullness of the Gentiles has occurred. Now, what, what does that mean, fullness of the Gentiles? There's different beliefs, but the one I'm most comfortable with right now is that the fullness of the Gentiles is not referring to the moment the last Gentile gets saved. You know, God's got this number, and when the last person gets saved, then... That's it. The fullness of the Gentiles is over. I believe it refers to the yielding of the Gentile believers to God's will for Israel, to embracing their Jewish roots, to doing what they can do to be a light to the Jewish people and Israel. On the prophetic timeline, it's right here, this space right here. That's where it is right now. This is... The Gentile, the church age, Gentile age, some point we're going to go over into here where we'll, the second coming will happen and Israel will experience a national revival. God will lift the veil from Jewish eyes and there will not be just a remnant anymore. Romans eleven twenty nine says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So much for replacement theology. God has a promise and a calling on his people, an imperfect people, but he has a calling for them. I believe that when Gentile believers have done their part, the Jewish people will rise up and bless the world like never before because that is their destiny. That is what they've been called to God to do, to bless the world. And, of course, they have, as I said before, they have absolutely in many ways already. Remember in the beginning of tonight's teaching, we read Genesis 12, 3, where God promised Abraham he would bless those who bless him and his descendants and curse them who don't. To recap, how can you bless Israel? 
love them, pray for them. And when I say pray for Israel, I include the whole, everybody who lives there, Arab and Jew, because there will be no peace until the Arab nation also comes to know Yeshua. Make them jealous of the love and faith you have. Be thankful for, treasure, and honor your Jewish roots of faith. I want to end with a quote by Edith Schaefer. She and her husband Francis ran a place in Switzerland where uh, many believers would come. She says, People act as if Christianity is a new religion, as it just sprang up 2,000 years ago. But it's not new. It is simply a continuation. It is a fulfillment. It is a next step. It is proof that the covenant with Abraham was true. It is Jewish. And with that, I say, praise the Lord. We'll have Pastor Sheldon come on out. Thank you so much. Now, what is amazing is everything that God has said, he does. Uh, Jesus actually fulfilled, I think, close to 350 prophecies uh, when he came, uh, including his death and resurrection, and everything that was uh, said, he did. And sometimes we can think, well, you know, that's, that all, all Jesus did was look at the written word and then fulfill those prophetic words and just do what the Bible said, or what, how do you say the Old Testament? Tanakh. Tanakh. And he, he could have just done that, as well as the disciples. They, they just followed those things. But if, that, if those were just lies, and Jesus just kind of looked at the words and said, okay, I got to do all these things to match up who I am so that people believe that I'm, I'm the Messiah... If he were to do that, I'm not too sure if you or I, as a disciple, would follow a person who wasn't prophetically fulfilling what God had said from the very beginning with the promise of Abraham, understanding that, okay, we're all in this together. We're going to conspire together so that Jesus looks like he's the Messiah, and then actually believe that lie and then die for their belief in Jesus Christ. In other words, if, the, if, there, was a, if there was a way for Jesus to fulfill every single prophetic word as a conspiracy that he wasn't really the Messiah, then I'm pretty sure the disciples would have caught something. They, I mean, if we followed a person who was just fulfilling lies or trying their very best to match up to the Tanakh or the Old Testament, I think we would have caught on to that. I mean, even up until the point where, okay, let's just say that everything Jesus did was planned out on himself looking at the Tanakh and saying, okay, I need to do this, this week, this, this day, 350 prophetic words. I got to fulfill all of those. Oh, and, and I also have to die on the cross. Okay, all of that is doable. Any one of us could probably, to some degree, fulfill each of those prophetic words. The only one we could not do is rise from the grave. See, up until the point of Jesus dying on the cross, 
pretty much every human being can possibly do and maybe explain some healings. You know, you could, maybe, possibly. Maybe it's coincidence, but not Jesus. He proved that he was the Messiah by rising from the grave. That was the proof of who he is. And so when he rises from the grave, he then again meets with his, with his disciples. And then his disciples see him in his resurrected form. And then now Jesus ascends back into heaven. Now we have the New Testament. And all of the disciples, except for John, John was imprisoned in Patmos. All of his disciples died for their faith in Jesus. I don't think any of us would die for someone who was living a lie. I think maybe we could kind of go up until the point of someone saying, okay, you're going to die for your faith. And we would say, no, okay, we're just kidding. Uh, he, he, he conspired. He, was, he wasn't really the Messiah. He was doing this, this, and this. No, they all died because they saw not just what he did, but who he is as well as in his resurrected form. They all died for their faith. In order for us to really live, we got to be willing to die to ourselves. And that's why Jesus rose from the grave so that he could give us a new life. You know, when we talk about Israel and the, the Jewish roots, you cannot help but feel so thankful that Israel still exists today, the nation. Because we could, we could be talking about something so different if Israel did not exist today, but because they're still here today. And if you look at all of the evidence that points to them in the way of being surrounded by all the enemies, all their enemies, that they shouldn't be existing today, you cannot tell me that the hand of God is not on Israel. He is definitely protecting Israel. And he's the one that's showing us that not only is he the protector, but he's the promise keeper. And he will fulfill everything he said. I read the book of Revelation. It says, you are written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And so we're sealed by the blood of Jesus. I know Les, um, he has that heart for Israel. In fact, I'm going to ask Les if he could uh, come up and share a little bit. Uh, Susie's husband, and he just just that that heart that uh, he has developed for Israel. So would you welcome with me Les as we're going to close, but he's going to share a little bit tonight. Thank you, Pastor. Right now I say what Abraham said. Hineni, Lord, here I am. Whatever it is you want me to do, here I am. You know, actually, this is quite interesting. My wife gets 40 minutes. I have two minutes. (laughs) This must be a snapshot of our marriage. (laughs) Uh, Let me just say, I applaud those of you who are here. I see Ernette from Honaka'a coming here week after week. I see Jan and Bob. and I mean, I see so many of you. Clara, 
This is not quite that simple to comprehend all the holidays and such, but you're, you're constantly there. And I applaud you for wanting, desiring to learn about these things. Well, here's a little background on my relationship with God and Israel and the Jewish people. The fact is that, is that for years, I never understood the significance of Israel and the Jewish people in God's eyes. Perhaps it's the fact that I never met a Jewish person while living in Honolulu. I was raised in the church, and I loved God with a passion. Every Sunday I was there at Mass, all the holy days. Every Saturday, 2.30, I was there for confession. And this is from being a little a young guy, all the way up. I loved God as I understood. You know, I read and heard that Jesus was Jewish, but it never registered in the hard drive of my brain what that meant. But you know, we have a God who is patient. 46 years ago, I read a writing by D.H. Lawrence where he wrote about the Zionist movement and about life in a kibbutz. At that time, I said, I want to go and help out in that kibbutz. Well, it never happened. But I believe that God placed a seed of love in my heart for Israel and, the, and her people way back then. And that was back in 1969. You know, this remained dormant in my heart for many, many years. But you know what? I have a God who loves me passionately. At the appropriate season in my life, he took the scales off my eyes and he he allowed me to be touched by his word. We read throughout scriptures that, uh, like in Deuteronomy 32.10, we read that Israel is the apple of God's eyes. If this is so, then in turn, I want to honor my God in loving who he loves, the people that he loves. Why would I not want to love Israel and her people if God declares his love? When I read Romans 11, 17, the light goes on. I'm grafted into the vine. This Gentile, this Goy, amazing. Wow. I say to all of you, if you have proclaimed that Jesus Christ is a son of God who became man in the flesh and died for our sins, then you are grafted into that vine. Then you can proclaim, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ehad. Hear, O Israel. 
The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. I thank you for these two minutes. <laughs> Mahalo. Thank you, Les. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Les. We're going to pray, and if you bow your heads with me. Oh, right before we do, can I, can I mention some of this too? Uh, you, can, you can talk about this, and I'll, I'll, I'll recap a little bit. Okay, I'm just going to go real sure. fast. Because the Lord has done what he's done with Lester and his heart, and because of my background and my calling from God, We've decided to start a small group here at New Hope. It's going to be called the Israel Focus Group. And what we're going to be doing is twice a month meeting, taking a look at the miracle of Israel. It's history, it's geography, it's culture, and it's prophetic significance. Talking about things that I didn't talk about over these weeks. We're going to take a virtual tour and see where Yeshua walked and taught and the Hebraic backgrounds of his words. And I think, even though I didn't write this on here, a little bit in our brain is thinking that in the future, a trip to Israel for those that are interested. So if you're interested in that, Pastor Lynn, I'm not sure where the flyers It'll are. but in the back, right in the back. Right the, before you exit, okay. you'll have it. Yeah. The flyers are in the back. And if you're interested, pick up a flyer and join us. We will begin this Tuesday in the, key, in the team kids' room at 6.30. I told, when Susie uh, asked me about this, I said, absolutely. You're, you're not going to have a small group. You're going to have a big, small group. So <laughs> uh, just pray and ask God, can I be involved in this? And, and when I say involved, what I mean is it's not just, it, you're going to learn. You're going to learn a lot. But more than that, it's really developing a heart for Israel. Also developing a heart for your relationship with the Lord. And Susie is doing such an outstanding uh, teaching and has been for the past couple of weeks that this is just a snapshot picture of the possibilities of learning more about Israel, especially with our relationship with the Lord. Uh, it, it'll tie in so well. So when you leave here tonight, take one of those papers and, and then you can think about it later. But take one so that you actually know the dates and then where we're going to meet. But I would like to encourage all of you, even if uh, there are people that aren't, aren't here tonight that you know of, I want to encourage you to pass that on and just let them know this is what we're thinking of doing. And then send them to our website because they can see the uh, past weeks that Susie has taught on uh, our Jewish roots and that way they can get a snapshot picture of, okay, this is the direction that we're going. And who knows what will come out of that. Maybe more small groups will be birthed. We don't know. All we know is as the church, this is the perfect timing, Moadim, God's appointed time for us as a church to learn about our Jewish, Jewish roots. So once again, can we say thank you to Susie? Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. Let's stand together tonight as we conclude in prayer. And Boy, God is so good. This is rich teaching and uh, just His Spirit that uh, dwells in us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this night. We thank you for allowing us the privilege of being a part of your kingdom. You found a way for us to be grafted in. And you did it through your Son. You could have done it any other way, but you came in such a way that you modeled your love to this world. You showed us what love is. You didn't just talk about it, but you showed it. 
so we're thankful. We look forward to the wonderful things you will continue to do, not just in our hearts, but through this church, through people like Susie, who understands her relationship with you. And now she's giving it away and wanting to present it to the rest of the world, wanting other people to understand how good it is to be in a relationship with you. We pray for Israel, Lord. We pray for the Jewish people and those that have yet to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray, Lord, that their eyes would be opened, that the veil would be removed, that they too would come into a relationship with you. And when they do, you'll finally say to them, welcome home, for this is where you've always belonged. We thank you again for this time we got to spend together. We pray your blessing over all of us, especially with Susie and Les, as they continue to preach the gospel in such a way that people find you. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said amen. Can we thank our Lord? Thank you, Susie and Les.